So the theme of the second lecture is very much to pick up on the second of the two serious objections I raised to the Everett interpretation to the many worlds theory in the previous lecture. You recall the first objection, or the first concern, was exactly how we could understand the question of what, what justified interpreting these superposition states as multiplicities. And I argue that in that situation, we just need, we need to understand the right theory in general of how higher order objects like chairs and tables and cats and dogs are to be understood in our physics and just apply that framework to the mathematics of quantum mechanics. But the other problem, and the one that's had rather more attention in the literature here, has been the question of how we make sense of probability in the many worlds theory. And you can sort of break that concern into two. You can think that, firstly, we're not really sure how probability even makes any sense in the many worlds theory. So the theory seems to be a theory which involves deterministic branching. If I ask, what should I expect in the future? The answer is I should, with 100% certainty, expect to be a version of David who sees the cat alive. And in addition, I should expect with 100% certainty that there'll be a version of David that sees the cat dead. Now, it's true that each individual version of me will see a perfectly definite state of affairs. No version of me will see anything that contradicts quantum mechanics predictions. But the difficulty is that quantum mechanics is supposed to be making probabilistic predictions. So how we even understand those probabilities in a context where everything happens is unclear. That's the first problem. And the second problem is to say, even suppose we understand what probability could mean in the many worlds theory, how do we understand the quantitative numbers associated with the probabilities? So for instance, let's suppose I exaggerate Schrodinger's moral um, lackings and take a very large sample of cats and repeat these experiments with the interference, let's say, set so that according to ordinary quantum mechanics, every time I run the experiment, there should be a two-thirds chance of killing a cat. So now I run the experiment 100 times. The many worlds theory predicts a myriad branches from any possible combination of which cats live and which cats die, there will be some branches with that set of combinations on them. But quantum mechanics predicts that I should feel it's highly probable that about two thirds of the cats are dead. Well, when there are branches where all the cats are dead, branches where half the cats are dead, a quarter of the cats, none of the cats, it's not clear in that framework how I can understand how the probabilities are linked to the actuality of what's described in the physics. It's certainly not possible to simply suppose that the probabilities can be connected in a simple way to the fraction of worlds. There's no simple way, that is, to say, well, what I mean is that in nearly all the worlds, two-thirds of the cats die. That turns out not to work. So those two problems, which often get called the problem of incoherence and the quantitative problem in probability in the many worlds theory, have exercised a lot of the debate in the last 15 years on this topic. And there's been a rather sneaky move that advocates of the Everett interpretation have made here, which their critics would say is a move they appeal to at the drop of a hat, which is to say this problem that we, the critics, claim is a peculiar problem of the many worlds theory is actually a general philosophical problem that's just been cast into sharp relief by the unfamiliar surroundings of the many worlds theory. And that, that, that underhand trick is more or less what I intend to play right now. <laughs> <coughs> 
So what I want to do for the next half hour or so, really, is talk not so much about probability in the many worlds theory as about probability in general. And I want to get across the fact that probability in general is a very thorny and difficult philosophical question. While we know how to use probability, pragmatically speaking, in science, to understand what probability is, is a very hard ask. <laughs> and I'm actually going to attempt the sort of judo-like move of saying not only is probability no more of a problem in the many worlds theory than it was previously, actually the many worlds theory gives us some resources to understand probability that were not available to us in the non-quantum mechanical context. That's the prospectus. Let me make a start on that. So the first thing to say if we're talking about probability is that it seems to come in various sorts. And one of the standard dichotomies that the philosophy literature draws is to distinguish between subjective probabilities and objective probabilities. So subjective probabilities, which sometimes get called personal probabilities, and which sometimes get called credences, are supposed to be something peculiar to the particular agent. They're measures of an agent's degree of confidence in some hypothesis or theory. And so it's perfectly coherent for, let's say, Harvey and I to have different personal probabilities of a given occurrence. Objective probabilities, which sometimes get called chances, are supposed to be something different. They're not supposed to be something about an agent's relation to the world, not something about my beliefs. They're supposed to be something about the world itself, in some sense. And let me illustrate that, and also illustrate that it's not a completely unproblematic distinction by giving a few examples. So here we have something that is very much on the subjective probability side. Um, the probability of Labour winning the next election is two-thirds. Now, you can quantify these numbers. You can talk about them. Um, if you've got a view about, about how likely it is Labour will win the next election, then Ladbrokes and um, John Williams and people will want to talk to you. Your bet betting shops will cash the odds of these things and will pay out according to the results. And insofar as we can understand those numbers at all as, as more than just the playing out of a social activity, then if I say I think Labour's two-thirds likely to win the next election, I'm expressing some degree of confidence in it happening that somehow expresses the fact that I'm more confident in the proposition than its negation. And indeed, it goes further than that and quantifies how much more confident I have in the proposition than its negation. But if you were to say the probability of Labour winning the next election is one-third, it's not obvious that we're disagreeing about some fact. It's not obvious, that is, that there's a determinate, true answer to the question of how likely it is that Labour will win the next election. After all, we know that's only going to happen once. Here's a borderline case. If I say this coin is fair, I seem to be saying something somewhat objective. If I say, if I roll two fair dice, the probability of getting two sixes is one in 36, I seem to be saying something objective. Now, it's not completely clear what I could mean and what that objective thing could be, because both of those systems seem to be deterministic. That is, it seems to be that if I knew the starting physics of the coin or of the die, then I could predict with certainty the result of the, throw, of the toss or the throw. And in fact, at least in the case of coins, that's not even a hypothetical. There are machines which will flip coins in a way that will look remarkably random, but which will land heads every single time. I'm told you can actually teach yourself to do this. 
could be useful in some contexts. <laughs> and yet, in another sense, it does seem that there's something objective about the claim that the coin, that, that if I've got fair dice, the probability of them landing uh, double six is one in 36. The entire business model of Las Vegas is built around the fact that we seem to be able to say objective, robust things about probabilities of random events like the fall of dice, um, the playing of cards, the landing of roulette wheels. Here's an even more solid case. <clears throat> it's a little smaller than I intended, sorry. Quantum mechanics itself and in particular, nuclear and particle physics seems to deliver very specific, very precise, quantified, measurable claims that nonetheless seem to be statements of probability. The probability per minute of a neutron decaying is 0 0.068. That doesn't seem to be an expression of my opinion. It seems to be saying something about neutrons. <clears throat> if a decaying nucleus of plutonium, if a nucleus of plutonium 240 decays, the probability of that decay being a spontaneous fission event is 5 times 10 to the power of 8. 10 to the power of minus 8. Very unlikely, but actually sufficiently likely, likely relative to what happens with plutonium-239 that we seem to have discovered an objective difference between plutonium-239 and plutonium-240 that makes a difference to what we can do. And it seems that these are not simply expressions of our own uncertainty or curiosity. These are somehow very objective features of pieces of physical reality. And indeed, if we know these, very, these objective facts about these objective pieces of physical reality, we can make predictions and constructions. We can do technological things, experimental things. We can do some terrible things. That's Nagasaki, the project of building the atomic weapons in the Manhattan Project relies pretty strongly on, the, on, on what seemed to those project workers to be pretty solid objective facts about the uranium and plutonium nuclei that were involved in the work they were using. OK, so the subjective probabilities are perhaps not so problematic. But the subjective probabilities don't seem to be the things that are turning up in the physics. They don't seem to be, I should say. That can be challenged. It seems, I've tried to make the case, that there is some objective notion of probability, some robust thing that looks factive, that looks like the kind of thing we work with in our science and measure in our science in roughly the same way we measure masses and charges, at least um, at a very broad level, that seems to be playing an important role in our doing physics, and that seems to be playing an important role in particular in our doing quantum physics, leaving aside entirely the many worlds theory for the moment. But that concept. That objective concept of probability is mysterious. Let's break that mystery down a bit and see why it's mysterious. We can distinguish two questions to ask about objective probability, which are notoriously very hard to answer. And I'm going to call those the what question and the why question. And here's the what question. What, if anything, is the categorical basis for probabilities? And when I'm saying categorical in that sense, I'm using that in the sort of metaphysician sense. What are the, if, I'm t if when I talk about that sample of plutonium or that neutron, and I say about that thing mm -hmm. that it's just objectively true that its probability of decaying or fissioning in a certain period is such and such a number, 
then what, what thing about that neutron makes it true? It's not its mass, it's not its charge, it's not its height or its width. What kind of actual objective things in the world, what kind of physical properties that a system can have can make it true that its probability of behaving in a certain way is such and such? And then there's a related question, the why question. Suppose we found something which, formally speaking, has the right kind of properties to play the role of probability. Is that enough by itself to make it probability? Well, surely not. The area, if I take a, a, a sheet of A4 paper, or sorry, if I take a sheet of paper that's one metre square, then areas of subregions of that sheet of paper obey the calculus of probabilities. Formally, mathematically, they have the right features to be probabilities, and yet they are not probabilities. Those things don't seem to be the things we're talking about when we talk about probabilities. So the why question is then, once we've identified something in the objective physical world, which is supposed to be that in virtue of which a probability claim is true, we need to ask, why is that the case? How is it that those physical facts are sufficient to make that thing a probability? That framework probably looks quite abstract. Let me leave it there as a sort of set of guide rails and show you how that works in a bit of detail. So let's start with the what question. Here's a very tempting idea about probability. Probabilities are relative frequencies. So it's tempting to say, if I were to say, for instance, that um, uh, a given neutron has probability one six, or let's say a die has a probability one six of landing six. What I mean is something like this. If I throw it six times, it's going to land six once. Well, that's a terrible account, of course. If I were to roll a die six times, of course, on average, I get a six once. But I might get more sixes. I might get fewer sixes. I'd be crazy to suppose that just because I've rolled a die six times and I've got a six twice, I should thereby conclude that the die is not actually a fair die, that the probability of landing six is not one sixth. So the temptation is to say, fine, let's roll the dice many more times than that. Let's um, roll it not six times, but 600 times. And if I roll the die 600 times, I would expect that I'll get a six about 100 times. But notice again that word about. What do I want to say? about the situation where I get 200 sixes. Do I want to say that's impossible? I don't think so. What I want to say, I think, is that if I roll a die 600 times, then getting 200 sixes is very improbable. <coughs> and that's a problem. Because of the idea of my project here is to understand what probability is. And I want to make it definitional of a die having probability one sixth of landing six, that if I roll it 600 times, I'll get about 100 sixes, then I don't have the resources left to say only if I roll a die 600 times, I'll probably get 100 sixes. That won't do as an analysis of probability. If we understand probability independently of frequencies, then of course that gives me the resources to ground such a claim. If I know already what probability is, I might be, and I know how probability is connected to frequency, I can understand the claim that a certain set of frequency results is probable. But 
if I want to understand what probability is, defining it that way is not really going to help. OK, so I could say, well, let me define probabilities in the infinite long run. Let me say, as I roll the dice more and more times, the fraction of sixes will get closer and closer to one-sixth. So if I were to roll the dice 600 billion trillion quadrillion times, I'll get awfully close to 100 million billion quadrillion sixes. OK, so there's a technical problem with that and a conceptual problem. Or perhaps, in a sense, two different conceptual problems. <coughs> Here's one problem there. If I were to roll the dice... Here's what would happen if I were to roll a fair die 100 million billion quadrillion times. It would sort of disintegrate. <laughs> so when I, say it, when, I, when, I, when I say that I'm going to roll the dice that many times, I can't be talking about something that's ever supposed to be happening in the physical world. I must be talking about some kind of hypothetical scenario. And it's a quite, surre it's a quite bizarre hypothetical scenario. It's a, it's a hypothetical scenario where dice are indestructible. And it's tempting to say that's just sort of loose talk and that actually what we're appealing to is the sort of ideal properties of the dice. But of course, if, if what we're appealing to is the ideal properties of a dice that has probability 1, 6, if that's what we mean by it being an ideal die, we're begging the question. We're failing again to give an analysis of what the probabilities are. So that's one problem with that infinite long run strategy. The other problem is it would be great. Suppose we, suppose we can understand an infinite long run. It would be great to be able to say, well, as a matter of mathematics, then in the long run, probabilities tend to relative frequencies. It would be great, that is, if there were theorems in maths to that effect. Unfortunately, we can't prove that in the long run, probabilities converge, sorry, relative frequencies converge to probabilities. What we can prove is that in the long run, relative frequencies converge to probabilities probably. And so again, this is great if we already understand probability and we just want to analyze its statistics. But if we want to analyze and, and, and learn what probability is from thinking about frequencies, we're going to find it a very difficult task. <coughs> OK, but if probabilities aren't frequencies, what can they be? Because the nice thing about frequencies is they do at least seem to be something objective in the world. They, they, they're, they're nicely categorical in my previous terminology. Well, what are the alternatives? Here's the main alternative that gets offered as to how we can understand what probability is. Probability's got something to do with symmetries. So one of the things you might have seen in school, if, um, if you remember being taught um, probability in maths, or if you, if you teach probability in maths, is that the reason it's true that the probability of the die landing one-sixth is the six ways it could land. That by itself is not a good argument. Here's why not. Take the die, paint five of its sides red and one of them green and ask, what's the probability that it lands green when you throw it? And according to that reason, the answer is one in two, because there's two ways it could land, the green way and the red way. Something went wrong there, didn't it? So you might think, well, really, when you said there were, when you said there was one way it could land that was green, really there were five ways it could land. But that's not true. There were infinitely many ways it could have landed. It could have landed this way round, this way round, this way round. It could have landed over here, or it could have landed over here. Counting possibilities is not going to get us there in this situation. What's really going on, I think, when we say um, that there are six possibilities, there is that there are six indistinguishable probabilities, six probabilities that should be regarded as somehow equipossible. 
And I think our grounds for saying that is something like, well, the die is symmetric. I can rotate one face onto another. And that's a symmetry, furthermore, that's suspected by the laws of physics. If the die's pips are made of iron, and if the die is in a strong magnetic field, then the probability of it landing six is going to be rather a lot higher, or rather a lot lower, rather, than one six. So, so that what's going on is that the die has a certain symmetry with respect to the physics it's in. Even that's not quite enough, though. I mean, um, notice that, so just as a warning that something's puzzling here, suppose I take a die, I hold it with the six facing up, I hold it a millimetre above the ground, I let go. Doesn't matter how symmetric it is. <laughs> you can be pretty confident it's going to land six. And that points to the real problem with this sort of frequency approach. The die lands one way rather than another. Either lands six or it lands one or it lands two or whatever. So it the, situ the physical situation can't be completely symmetric. Something has to break the symmetry. Because if nothing breaks the symmetry, then it can't be the case that one thing happens rather than another. So in the, in the case I've just described, the symmetry, um, you know, it's, it's clear the symmetry is actually broken by the initial condition. And it's obvious how that works. If I were to drop the die from a great height, then the dependency of how the die lands on its initial condition is very complicated and very sensitive to the initial condition. And so in that situation, it's going to be very hard for me, predict, for me to predict how it lands. But it's still going to be the case that some feature of the initial conditions can't be completely symmetric because somehow the symmetry has to go away. Marie Curie um, has a principle, what's come to be called Curie's principle, symmetry in, symmetry out. If I get an asymmetry in my final situation, I must have put it in somehow. OK, so those are two attempts to analyze probability, what probability could be. Here's a third sort of attempt. This is Tim Maudlin in characteristically diffident style. He says, if someone complains that he does not understand the notion of physical probability, then I am tempted to respond with Dr. Johnson, I have found you an argument, I am not obliged to find you an understanding. <laughs> that is, I cannot deny the possibility of a sort of cognitive blindness that would make someone unable to understand the notion of probability being used here, and I cannot offer a remedy for such blindness. <laughs> Don't be bashful, Tim. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> so Maudlin is saying, and it's a perfectly human thing to say, look, you, um, you, effectively, you have to have some primitive somewhere. We understand how to use probability. Those who claim they don't understand probability, says Maudlin, are in a minority. We, we might not be able to analyze it or reduce it to anything else, but explanation's got to stop somewhere. There have to be some primitives in your story. Let probability simply be primitive. Let there be no analysis. Let's answer the what question by saying probability is part of the unanalyzable starting furniture of the world. So much for the what question. Think of the why question. So the question here is, if you like, what makes something probability? What is probability and how does probability connect to other non-probabilistic things in the world? And David Papineau has a very nice analysis of this where he says, really, when you break it down, there are two links between probabilistic claims about the world and other claims about the world. There's a link from the world to probabilities, his inferential link. There's a link from probabilities to the world, his decision theoretic link. And the inferential link basically says the way we work out what the probabilities are is by counting frequencies. So if I want to determine what the probability of the die landing six is, the way I do it is I roll the die many, many times. And, you know, if I've rolled it n times and 
it's landed six k times, then tentatively I conclude that the probability of it landing six is k over n, or about k over n, and the more times I roll it, the more confident I am of that assertion. So that's the inferential link, probabilities from frequencies. And the decision theoretic link is that knowing the probabilities guides my actions. If I'm told um, that it's more probable it will rain in July than in August, other things being equal, that's a good reason to hold my wedding in August. If I'm told such and such drug has a higher probability of alleviating my back pain than such and such drug, that's a good reason to take the first drug. If I'm told various things about the probabilities of outcomes and I'm considering how to bet, in a slightly more quantitative way, the probabilities are guides to my actions and my betting preferences. And Papineau says, look, these are the ways in which probability connects the world. And by the way, we don't understand how any notion of probability has those features. Here's a slightly more systematic way of doing what Papineau does. This is due to David Lewis. Lewis helps himself to that earlier notion of subjective probability we talked about earlier. And Lewis says, we understand subjective probability basically fine. It's a measure of our confidence of hypotheses. And the way we understand how objective probability figures into our theories is we understand the link between objective probabilities and subjective probabilities. And his link is called the principal principle. <laughs> Indeed. And roughly speaking, what the principal principle says is, if you know what the objective probability of something is, that had better be your subjective probability as well. In other words, you shouldn't be able to say, says Lewis, well, the, the objective probability of this die landing six is one six, but I'm going to bet at two to one odds that it's not going to land six. I guess it's the wrong way around. But I'll bet at two, two to one odds that it'll land six. If, I'm, if I say, look, the objective probability of this happening is very low, but I'm really sure it's going to happen, then, says Lewis, you're acting irrationally. And you can sort of turn that round and say that for something to count as being objective probability, it had better be the kind of thing such that if I know what it is, I set my subjective probabilities equal to it. And there's a slightly more subtle statement of it that says something like, the subjective probability I give to a hypothesis, conditional on the objective probability of the hypothesis being P, is also P. And it turns out that if you buy Lewis's principal principle, you can derive Papineau's inferential and decision-theoretic links from it. The price for that is you have to accept the concept of subjective probability, which not everyone wants to buy. Right, but how do we answer the why question? Let's look at frequentism. So suppose that I, suppose, never mind how, that I really know the frequency unto the end of time with which this die is going to land six when I roll it. OK. And I know that if I roll this die, that, let's even be, be more generous. I know that over the next 100 million times this die is rolled, one sixth of the time, it will land six. OK, but I wasn't planning to roll it 100 million times. I'm planning to roll it once and call it a day. So if I want to decide, shall I bet on it landing six or not, why is it of the faintest interest to me um, what its long-run frequency pattern is going to be. And a way of making that vivid is, if we're defining our frequencies ad infinitum, well, the long-run frequency of something happening, averaged as, it, as the number of repetitions goes to infinity, is completely independent of the first time I throw it, or the first 10 times I throw it, 
or the first 10 to the power of 74 times I throw it. Any finite initial segment of an infinite sequence has no effect on the average value of something over that sequence. So it's really unclear, even if we had a frequentist understanding of probability to answer the what question, even if we could look at the world and from the frequencies extract some numbers which have the formal properties of probabilities, it's really unclear why those should have anything to do with our betting practice. That is, it's really unclear why the decision theoretic link should be true. And it's equally unclear why the inferential link should be true. It's equally unclear, that is, why if all I know about, if all I'm after is an infinite long run um, average, that I can get at that by saying I'll, I'll just sample a finite part of it. Now there's space to get round that by saying, well, look, okay, there's, there's space to get round it by the standard philosoph um, philosopher's trick of solving a problem by demonstrating that it is equivalent to the problem of induction which, since we can't solve, is therefore a sort of panacea moves. So you could say, sure, I can't explain why the first million tosses of the die are going to look like the rest of the tosses of the die, um, but, you know, that's the problem of induction. I kind of have to assume a certain regularity. And that's fair enough. The difficulty, I think, is the sort of regularity I want to describe is one that we know how to handle and how to describe through the language of probability. And that really takes us back to the what question. It's not obvious we've got a story to tell about how to analyse the world in a way that makes sense of that kind of regularity which abstracts away from that notion of probability. It's even, un even less clear, I think, why we should accept the principle-principle or the inferential decision-theoretic link on Maudlin's primitive conception of probability. In fact, Lewis is quite upfront about this. He says, is there any way that any Humean magnitude, he roughly means frequencies, could fill the chance role? Is there any way that an unhumean magnitude could? And he kind of means something like, like um, uh, like Maudlin's primitive probabilities. What I fear is that the answer is no both times. So the temptation then is to say, well, this concept makes no sense. He goes on to say, yet how can I reject the very idea of chance when I know full well that each tritium atom has a certain chance of decaying at any moment? That's worth saying, if we could make the, freak, make the symmetry line of reasoning work, we might have a rather easier route to understand the answer to the why question. Why should I bet um, one-sixth on, on, on the diet landing six? Well, because somehow if the world has some objective symmetry, it doesn't really make sense for my own preference structure not to respect that symmetry. But we saw that the, the symmetry route is also running into big problems. So claim, where do we get to here? Yeah, both the what and the why question are actually really rather profoundly difficult to answer. We really are in a very difficult position in, in philosophy of trying to understand what probability is. We have no really solid, agreed-upon strategies, and we have profound difficulties with most of the strategies on the table. So profound that many people are willing to actually bite the bullet and accept that it's all just primitive, that there's just no answer to these questions, just a basic brute fact. Others are willing to bite the bullet and say, even despite the apparent way probability operates in our science, nonetheless, there are, and when I say of the tritium atom, it has a certain chance of decaying, I'm not really saying anything about the tritium atom. I'm somehow coding my beliefs. Let's look at quantum mechanics. Here's how the Everett interpretation answers the what question. Remember, the what question is just to find something in the world which we are able to understand in terms other than probability, which has the right mathematical formal structure to play the probability role. Quantum mechanics has such a thing staring at us. The amplitudes, the numbers in front of the terms in the superpositions, have the right mathematical properties to behave like probability. 
in particular, in the scenario where I have branching, in the scenario where I have macroscopically distinct strands of physical reality that basically don't interfere with one another, then the behaviour of those numbers over time obeys the probability calculus and obeys the, cal obeys the rules for updating probability um, in the face of new data. And that's important because in the evident interpretation, these things are categorical magnitudes. They have precisely defined mathematical role in the dynamics of the theory. We don't need to define them intrinsically in some probabilistic way. We can't even state the theory without these numbers being in it. The mathematical structure of the theory, insofar as this is supposed to be a physical way the world is, rather than, as we saw, was impossible, an all statement, something codifying our ignorance, then the theory's got these built into its mathematical formalism in a way that isn't true of pre-quantum mechanical theories. What are these numbers? Well, if you want an intuition, it's not crazy to think of them as something like thickness of branches or number of branches. It's important to understand that's a metaphor. Um, really to understand that they're playing a certain mathematical role in the theory. It's a new sort of physical magnitude. But it's a physical magnitude which in the right circumstances, that is at the macroscopic emergent level, has the right mathematical structure to play the probability role. So claim. The what question is actually in rather better shape in the many worlds theory than in pre-many worlds physics or philosophy. Oh, the why question. Well, you notice that I said that the problem with the symmetry understanding of probability in ordinary physics was that something must break the symmetry because something must happen rather than another thing. Well, if you're paying attention, it might have occurred to you that that's, and I'm sure it did occur to you, that that's not actually true in the theory we're discussing. In the Everett interpretation, it really is the case that the two symmetric related situations are both co-present. The symmetry in the many worlds theory is unbroken. And that suggests rather strongly that we can actually understand the link between symmetry and probability as telling us why it is that the mod squared amplitudes, those numbers in front of the terms, act as the probabilities. The symmetries of the equations of the theory allow me to exchange terms in a superposition as long as the numbers in front of those terms have the same square. So there's prospect, and prospect that one can turn into formal mathematics, to understand how the symmetry probability link works in a way that just was not available to us in pre-quantum physics. Take that, as I suggested, if we had a resolution of what was going on in the case of symmetry, it might make us easier to answer the why question in the, in the form that Papineau and Lewis offer us to us. And that hope turns out to be borne out. If you make reasonable assumptions, then Papineau's inferential and dissension theoretic links, Lewis's principal principle, are provable. For arguments that basically have these symmetry considerations at their core, arguments which I'm afraid I'm not going to try to go through at 9 o'clock at night, so at some level you have to trust me on the maths, you can actually derive the fact that these assumptions hold. I don't want to suggest that the assumptions going into those proofs are uncontroversial, but there are proofs of this nature out there. The first of them was, was, um, was developed by David Deutsch. Here's David. Here's his, um, perhaps, not, perhaps, um, perhaps immodest, but perhaps reasonably so, 
quote in, the, in his paper on this. Thus we see that quantum theory permits what philosophy would hitherto have regarded as a formal impossibility, akin to deriving an ought from an is, namely deriving a probability statement from a factual statement. This could be called deriving a tends to from a does. <laughs> so Deutsch proved a result of this kind about 15 years ago. Since then, there's been a lot of work, quite a lot of that in Oxford, which has honed those results, formalised them, clarified some ambiguities, weakened some assumptions, connected it to some of the literature and decision theory. And we now have really rather powerful theorems, which start from quite general decision theoretic assumptions of the kind that enter into our ordinary decision theory, which have as their conclusion that the way somebody who is considering the Everett interpretation as among the range of possibilities that could be true is going to treat mod squared amplitudes in the Everett interpretation as if they're playing the role of probability. That is, they're going to update their beliefs about those amplitudes by looking at frequencies. They're going to use those amplitudes as guides to action. So let me sum up. There's a weak and a strong defense of probability in the Everett interpretation. The weak defense is, look, probability is difficult, OK? Even if it were true that we don't really understand probability in the Everett interpretation, it's not as if we understood it anywhere else either. So if you're trying to say, I will select a theory that I will reject the Everett interpretation because it doesn't give us a good understanding of probability, you're kind of running a double standards. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of like saying, I don't know, um, uh, I'm trying to decide uh, what pet I should have. Shall I have a cat or a dog? Well, the problem with having a cat is I really don't like animals with four legs. Cats have four legs. So I'd better have a dog instead. <laughs> but that's the weak defense. Well, excitingly, there's a strong defense. Yes, probability is really difficult to solve, but in the Everett interpretation, we can solve it. In the Everett interpretation, at the very least, we have answers to the what question and the why question that are much better than the answers we have in the pre-quantum case. So we, we've made much more progress, so goes this claim, in understanding what probability is in the many worlds theory than we had made in pre-quantum mechanical physics. And it turns out that resources that wouldn't have occurred to us to stipulate just on the grounds of solving the probability problem, that we, that we postulated for entirely different reasons coming out of physics, those resources turn out to be metaphysically extremely powerful in order to help us understand what probability is. So then the claim would be that if you're worried about probability, that's a reason to adopt the Everett interpretation. Let me stop there. Thank <laughs> you.